It's good to be together to worship God. And if you're visiting us for the first time, the severalth time, or this is your home, we're great and we're really pleased to have you with us. Um, I did have some treatment on Friday, so my energy levels are a bit low, so I hope you'll forgive me if I sit down for the majority of the hymns. But we are going to hear some words from Psalm 119 to lead us into our thoughts this morning. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, and there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes, and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. And so we come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Gracious God, As we gather here today, we do so for many different reasons. Some of us are certain of our faith, certain of what we believe and confident in our hope. Some of us are seeking certainty, unsure what to believe, longing for reassurance in a bewildering world. Some of us don't quite know why we are here. Perhaps we sought some quietness. Perhaps we came with a loved one. Perhaps we were merely curious to find out what goes on. Each of us comes as we are, a unique blend of nature and nurture, with our own hopes and fears, joys and sorrows, longings and needs. So accept us, Lord just as we are. Saving God, as we find ourselves accepted as we are, we dare to dream of how we might become. Some of us long for release from memories that prevent us being truly free. Some of us live with regrets about what we once did or once failed to do. Some of us live with the bewilderment of feeling that we're really quite good and not understanding why it is that we might need to be forgiven. Each of us comes as we are, needing to be released from our own sins or those of others, to know our true worth and to be made more fully human. So forgive us, Lord, and make us new. Sustaining God, as we find ourselves renewed, we dare to offer ourselves to you afresh. Some of us needing to be convinced again of your interest in our lives. Some of us 
needing to be challenged to new levels of discipleship and service. And some of us needing to be encouraged just to carry on as we are. So strengthen us, Lord, for life in all its fullness. We make our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Our readings this morning are all from the New Testament, and we are starting with 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which is page 269, if you have one of the church Bibles. All scripture is inspired by God, and is useful for teaching the truth, rebuking error, correcting faults, and giving instruction for right living, so that the person who serves God may be fully qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. And then we turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, which is page 278. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts all the way through to where soul and spirit meet, to where joints and marrow come together, It judges the desires and thoughts of man's heart. There is nothing that can be hidden from God. Everything in all creation is exposed and lies open before his eyes. And it is to him that we must all give an account of ourselves. And then lastly, in 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses there, page 303. We write to you about the word of life, which has existed from the very beginning. We have heard it, and we have seen it with our eyes. Yes, we have seen it, and our hands have touched it. When this life became visible, we saw it. So we speak of it, and tell you about the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made known to us. What we have seen and heard, we announce to you also so that you will join with us in the fellowship that we have with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this in order that our joy may be complete. So today we're going to begin a short series of services focusing on the Bible, how we understand it, the role it plays in our lives, And centrally, how God speaks to us in and through this complicated and, if we're honest, sometimes confusing book or library of books. Over the coming weeks, we're going to be challenged to think about how we handle difficult texts, about the dangers of a closed-minded, legalistic reading, and the dangers of selective reading, as well as affirming the vital work of the Bible Society in its work of translation. And then finally, when we reach the end of the series, if you hang on till then, asking that all-important, so what, question about why Bible-inspired living matters in this day and age. Today we're going to begin with the thorny topics of inspiration and authority. Thinking a little bit about what the Bible says of itself 
and about its relationship to the world word of God. And to try and help us on our way in that endeavour, we're going to be reminding ourselves of part of the Baptist Declaration of Principle to see what that says to us about the Bible. And then we're going to look at a model suggested by the great German theologian Karl Barth. So I hope I get it right, because somebody who's sat in the same classes as me is sitting over there at the moment. So if I get it wrong, well, hey, there you go. So we're going to start with the Baptist Union of Great Britain version of the Baptist Declaration of Principle, which I happen to think is theologically slightly more sound than the Baptist Union of Scotland one, but there you go. The Baptist Declaration of Principle states that our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and that each church has the liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to interpret and administer his laws. Let's just hear that again, because of a lot of words there. Our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and that each church has the liberty, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to interpret and administer his laws. The subtle difference between the Baptist Union of Great Britain and the Baptist Union of Scotland is how Jesus and God are related within that, nothing to do with scripture or interpretation. In this single sentence, packed with complicated theological ideas, are expressed the understandings of authority and liberty that define what Baptist Christianity endeavours to be. Christ-centred, Bible-informed, spirit-guided, and locally relevant. And that's the order. Christ-centred, Bible-informed, spirit-guided, locally relevant. And it seems to me that within that statement is precisely the hierarchy of authority that Karl Barth offers, and which is on your little piece of paper that was stuffed in your hymn book as you came in, and that I invite you to take home and ponder more at your leisure. You need the the bit of paper, otherwise the distinctions of the print that's in my script won't show out. We have word, all block capitals. We have word, beginning with a capital W, and we have word, all lowercase, three different levels of word. First of all is the word of God. The word through which God created all things that ever will be, the word that was spoken at creation, the word that became incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of God. To be authentically Baptist, our primary authority in all things should be Jesus. Jesus comes before the Bible in a Baptist understanding of what it means to be Christian. But of course, there is a practical limitation there, isn't there? Because we cannot travel back in time to meet Jesus as he travels around preaching and teaching and healing. There is only one way we can encounter Jesus, and that is in the Bible. Through the records we have in the Gospels, and the hints and glimpses that we find throughout 
the whole of the Bible. Every time the Bible talks about the word of God, it is a hint and a glimpse of Jesus, the Christ of God, the Messiah. So first is the word of God, the actual speech of God, which became alive in Jesus. That's our starting point. And then after that is the word, capital W, lowercase the rest of it, according to Bart, of God, which is scripture. And we think about scripture, we need to understand what it is. This is the selected writings of ancient people of faith who were inspired by God's spirit to record certain events in the lives of certain people. To write down poetry, to write down stories. When the letter to Timothy speaks of scripture, all scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired, we need to be very careful because that refers to what we know as the Old Testament. When Timothy was a young man going out leading churches and preaching, the New Testament hadn't been invented. In fact, most of it hadn't even been written. It was scripture in those days referred to what we know as the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And so that is how Timothy would have heard those words from Paul, and how Timothy's church would have heard those words. There were all sorts of things that were around. If you get a Roman Catholic Bible or a a complete Bible with Apocrypha and Deuterocanonical books, you will find there are other things that some people accept as God-inspired writings that have a secondary role in helping us in our faith and understanding. It was going to be between three and four hundred years. Andrew and Andrew, two Andrews, can correct me on the exact date of closing of canon because I can never remember what it was. But around about three or four hundred years after Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, the collection of books that we now have together in the Bible was agreed. This is the set of of works that people believe God had inspired to express something of the word of God in a way that would speak to us for all time. This mysterious and complex book is a way we can encounter Jesus individually and collectively as God's Holy Spirit inspires us to engage with it. So there's the word of God, which is Jesus. There's the word of God in scripture. And then we come to the little word, the words at the bottom, what we might think of as the lowest level of the authority. And as I understand the way Bart perceives it, the little w, little word, with all little words, is talking about preaching. The words of one person who has studied the Bible the work of skilled commentators and people who, with God's help, endeavour to interpret and apply to everyday life what is discovered. Now, this location of authority in the preacher ought to make us a little uncomfortable as Baptists, and certainly it's a view the early Baptists would have rejected entirely. In favour of one that is actually far more Jewish and, ironically, biblical, in that the discernment of truth is a corporate endeavour, not an individual responsibility or task. It's not my job or any other preacher's job to come and say, thus says the Lord, 
It's my job to come and proclaim to you what I believe God is saying, but it is actually together that we determine, is this of God or isn't it? Matthew 18, one of the best-loved bits of scripture that people quote out of context and get themselves in muddles with, says, where two or three are gathered in God's name, there God is. And that is based on a Jewish understanding of the Shekinah presence of God, where two or three are gathered. But there is something fundamentally true in that. It's as we come together with our different life experiences, our different education, our different backgrounds, and we seriously engage with these words that God is able to speak to us. You see, unlike the Roman Catholics who put central authority in the word of the Pope, or the Anglicans who demand pronouncements from the Archbishop of Canterbury, and what a pressure that puts on those two men, Baptists not only allow but they expect each local congregation to listen very carefully to determine what God is saying to them through scripture, under the Spirit's guidance for their own local situation. And if we're true to our Baptist heritage, we will accept that this could be different for each congregation and that it might change within a congregation from time to time as God nudges, or leads, or pushes, or challenges them to think afresh about old ideas. The role of a preacher is important because in her, or him, is invested the trust of a local congregation that she will prepare diligently and prayerfully, seeking God's guidance in all she says, rather than just sounding off about her own hobby horses. But the responsibility for discernment lies with the whole church. As guided by the same spirit, her words are weighed and tested. Sometimes preachers are in tune with God and sometimes they're not. Sometimes God surprises all of us by saying unexpected things as together we listen for what God might be saying to us through human words. Reflecting on the words of scripture, inspired by the living word of God. So very briefly then, I just want to look at those three readings all kind of at once, and think how they relate to our understanding of the Bible and our life together as a church of God's people. Firstly, the famous words from the letter of Timothy that form the centre of so many debates on the status of scripture. People get themselves into all kinds of tangles when they talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. Usually in the King James Version or the New International Version, which is quite interesting considering the original was in Greek and Hebrew and Jesus spoke Aramaic, but there you go. Contrary to what some people assume, the Bible does not ever say within it that it is the inerrant transmission of God's voice. What scripture tells us, and what the letter to to Timothy tells us, is that scripture is God-breathed. If we pause for a moment and think of the creation story in Genesis 2, we recall these words. God took some soil from the ground and formed a man out of it. He breathed life-giving breath into his nostrils. 
and the man began to live. You see, the divine inspiration of scripture is not about God simply using human scribes to write down a message. It's about God making something that is, as Hebrews 4 tells us, alive and active. Or in my own, a little bit more crude translation of the Greek, with the help of a lexicon, living and working. It's not just a record of past times. It's not simply an instruction manual or a rule book. It's something that's vibrant and challenging because mysteriously, as we read and ponder, God brings it to life and works with it to shape our understanding. And if that doesn't make all of us stop for a moment or two, in wonder and a little bewilderment, then I'm a pretty rubbish preacher. There is something about this book that as we read it, it becomes alive in our hands. Secondly, and I love the word that is used here, and I checked it to make sure it was an accurate translation, Timothy is told that it is useful. This takes us away from the idea of a manual or a rule book and gives us something, I think, perhaps a bit more positive, something that's helpful and instructive, more a tool to be used in the teaching and training of other people and ourselves. <coughs> Do you know, one of the dangers for all of us as Christians is to fall into the narrow legalism that Jesus criticised in the religious leaders of his day. Do you remember those Pharisees that were more worried about how much rue and time you tithed than whether you loved your neighbour? And isn't there a danger that in our own way, we become as bad, wondering about what somebody else is doing rather than about what we're doing. Sometimes I think we are in danger of doing what actually was said to the church at Corinth, allowing the letter to kill when God's spirit gives life. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, or certainly sometimes when I read the Bible, there is a danger of stifling the spirit, closing our ears to her prompting, assuming that what we have always thought a passage meant is the only way of hearing it. And that, you know, it's really sad. Because if the word of God is alive and active, living and working, and if God's breath is really in it, it should be able to surprise us over and over again with new insights into the mystery of who God is and what it means for us to follow Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 says that God's word judges, or in a more accurate translation, critiques our thoughts and our intentions. Do you know, I think it's so easy to slip into a legalistic finger-pointing. You're doing that wrong, and you should be doing the other. Rather than allowing it to challenge us, to challenge the way we think and we behave. Perhaps we all do well to recall what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Do not judge others, so that God will not judge you. For God will judge you in the same way you judge others. He will apply the same rules to you as you apply to others. The Bible isn't a big stick for us to hit other people. It's a living word that can and sometimes should cut us to the quick, between the bone and the flesh. 
as it challenges our own attitudes and our own actions. We start with ourselves before we look at other people. And then lastly, the little extract from 1 John, with its echoes of the start of the fourth gospel, takes us back to this idea that Jesus is God's word made flesh. Jesus is the good news incarnate, lived out. And I think that begs some questions of us. If we have the audacity to perceive ourselves as part of the body of Christ, it is the church. It seems that the writer of this letter has seen Jesus and heard Jesus and touched Jesus. Things that we cannot do directly. And yet, if we are the body of Christ, it is through us and our behaviour, our words, our attitudes, that other people see and hear and touch Jesus. In our lives, individually and corporately, the word becomes flesh once more. So what should that look like? I wonder what the God seen in Jesus, sorry, what would the God seen in Jesus want to say to the people that we meet each day? And how do we portray that Jesus? When I was learning to be a minister, one of my tutors came out to hear me preach in the church where I was working on placement. And he said some nice things about my service, but he also said, do you know what, Katrina, you never smiled the whole time. And if you're the Jesus that people will see, it's not much fun. Actually, he said it far more kindly than that because he was a kind person, but that was the essence of it. I wonder what image of Jesus we show to the people we meet each day. And how does that image find itself shaped by our engagement with scripture? How does it echo the living word of God in Jesus Christ? Think about those stories of Jesus that we love so much. Do we challenge hypocrisy and legalism? Do we take risks crossing societal boundaries? Do we eat with sinners and tax gatherers? Do we love lepers and hug harlots? Or are we narrow in our thinking and insular in our expression? Do we limit God's truth to that that makes us feel secure? Or are we open to the new challenges God's spirit might bring to us if we dare to take seriously what the Bible says? Are we listening expectantly? Not for the comfortable words that make us feel affirmed in what we already believe and think, but for the disturbing challenge that comes as God's word through the word, under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaks to us, here and now, sometimes in wonders, sometimes in whispers, often in scripture, and always in Jesus. Let us join in prayer. Creator God, your word is the source of our human life. 
You breathed life into our nostrils and made us capable of relating to you, endowing us richly with creative gifts of understanding and imagination and a sense of humor, with the ability to learn from our history, our experience, and our emotions. But we have to confess that too often we have used your gifts for our own selfish advantage to the detriment of others. We have sought material rather than spiritual riches. We have often forgotten that from the time of Cain and Abel you called us to be our brother's and sister's keeper. Or we have shunned such a hard task. You called us through Jesus to be peacemakers, to love our enemies. But we have drawn up our own rules for society that have brought much disorder and violence, poverty and injustice, disease and addiction. So as a nation, we ask your forgiveness for those failures in international relationships that allow us to be provoked by violence into violence in a chain reaction that can result in an innocent aid worker being killed in a senseless shootout. Be gracious to her loved ones, we pray. So today we join our prayers to those of millions of Christians throughout the world to ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit we may rid the world of the sin of extreme poverty and that our words and deeds may be witnesses to your goodness and your love for both the powerful and the powerless. Help us to exercise the willpower you gave us to work for the good of our neighbours in every part of your world. Grant us such compassion for the diseased, the disabled and the needy that by so ordering our lives and our resources we may wake, make your word come to life once more through the way that we live as we read your word in the Bible, we ask that we may use the discernment you gave us to grasp what is your will for us today. But save us from imagining that your generous gifts make us totally self-sufficient. We pray for humility for all whose task it is to translate or expound your word that they may do so only in reliance on the guidance of your Holy Spirit. And we commend to your loving care all who live faithfully in the light of their understanding of your word, and especially those whose faithfulness is costly or puts them in danger in countries which deny freedom of speech or belief, We share the joy of your people in Chile in your gift of human ingenuity 
that can devise technology to, trap, to rescue trapped miners from far below the Earth's surface. And we long for the day when progress in human relationships will outpace the advances in technology that can kill as well as heal and rescue. In our own land, we pray for the politicians who must now make momentous decisions affecting us all, that they may be guided not by selfish or factional interests, but by the greater long-term good of the whole nation. So we humbly gather all our prayers together in the words that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Arise, kingdom.